0: Hey, do you like what we
1: do but want to hear it in Boston?
0: Oh, the fucking avengers the thing with fucking chris evans you know he went to school around here and shit right he fucking grew up around here dude that fucking house in fucking knives out kid that he was in that's in fucking Weston, massachusetts i drove by it my uncle my uncle okay he's a fucking contractor all right he drives a truck it's got ladders and shit on it right he has fucking pictures of chris evans working on that fucking movie and that that asshole Rian johnson that made that fucking stupid star wars movie i hated so much that guy right yeah he was fucking there too and oh a fucking james bond kid oh shit i fucking saw james bond and shit i had to send a picture of that to my fucking aunt she was like oh my god bring him over here i'm gonna fuck him so fucking hard and i was like auntie we're on a fucking group chat with ma i don't fucking care ma can come over here and fucking fuck him too for all i care and then we went on and on and on and everybody was fucking and now i know too much about my family kid
1: then you should check out this week's sponsor The Chipman Brothers Tangent. Talking about literally anything, be it nerd news or the lasting trauma of Catholic school. Chris and Bob Chipman have you covered. Listen to the Chipman Brothers Tangent on your favorite podcasting site today. Welcome to Geeks with S.H.I.E.L.D.s, your home for all things good and nerdy in this, The Darkest Timeline. I'm Lord Pernod Ork, and with me as always is... His S.H.I.E.L.D. brother, Axel Wright. I hate to ask, but uh, how's it going this week, man?
2: So here's the thing. It's really going the same as ever. I'm just having less trouble being distracted by it. (laughs) Or I'm having more trouble, quote, actually, being distracted by it. I'm having less trouble covering it. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) So as an example to anyone who isn't in our Discord, yesterday I got rear-ended on my way home from work. Not like heavy rear-ended, I'm not hurt, I didn't get whiplash or anything, but I was at a stoplight. Like, I was not moving. And this jeep behind me crushed into the back of my car and caved in the left side of my bumper and part of my trunk, essentially. It's still drivable, it's fine, it's just annoying. Oh, and a fun fact for Auric. I did manage to get a claim in, and my estimate meeting, as in, oh, we're the insurance company, here is the auto place we want to use, and here is the date at which you need to come from your estimate, is a month from now. Oh, meaning,
1: fuck that shit.
2: Meaning, Ulrich will get to see firsthand what the damage looks like, which is, again, probably less than what you're actually thinking It's just an annoying amount of damage, really, but slight spoilers to anyone out there, I'm going to visit Ulrich for the first time in something like six years, and he'll get to see it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I was getting pissed on your behalf when I told uh, Slagathar that, and you know the fucked up thing is, there's nothing more annoying than getting branded as stoplight, because you did nothing wrong. Yep. And your insurance is still going to treat you like shit for it. Like, how dare you let yourself get rear-ended?
2: <laughs> well, luckily, it's the other person's insurance, and they're taking full liability. So I just, it's just the annoyance of getting going through the bureaucracy red tape part of all of this. Oh, yeah.
1: know that's the other thing. It's like, and even if it goes well, there's red tape and bullshit on a process of like, hey, company that I pay to take care of these things, take care of this thing. Oh, I don't know if we can do that. I mean, that's going to that's gonna take us a while. What the fuck do you do? Well, mostly deny claims and make this process, you know, long <laughs> and painful.
2: Luckily, the other driver was plenty nice. Uh, she followed me into the, the parking lot nearby. And and I wasn't... I, I've heard stories of, like, my girlfriend got in an accident. Someone once and the other guy screamed at her. And I was like, all right, I don't know what happened. But I'm not going to... Admittedly, I'm so kind of emotionally dead in a lot of ways that... I just wasn't surprised. So I was like, all right, just let's exchange information. Okay, I'll talk to you later.
1: <laughs> yeah, the one time it happened to me in my car, no, it happened to me twice. One both times no real damage, but the second time my insurance company tried to claim it was my fault.
2: <laughs>
1: and I had to call and go, how the hell was it my fault? Well, weren't you, you know, the renter? No, I wasn't the re-randing person. I'm the one that got re Oh, we'll correct that. It's like, You motherfuckers. Any <laughs> excuse?
2: On a positive side of things, after said accident, I did go see a live recording of the dollop.
1: Oh, that's so cool.
2: Yeah. I've and, been
1: back on a dollop kick lately, and burning through some of the old stuff.
2: And every time the dollop gum goes on tour, they talk about local things. So they. Oh. this. This will reveal to any savvy listeners where I live if I haven't already done that many times. But they told a story about a hunting trip uh, back in the 1880s that got thrown into utter chaos when one of the members of the hunting trip forgot to bring his catheter, which he required in order to pee because of an See? enlarged prostate. So then he can't pee, and they're in the woods for a minimum of five weeks
1: Interesting. This is the fun thing. Anytime you go to a dollop show, I try sure to remember what it was about so that when eventually that episode gets released, I can go, okay, that's when Axel's at.
2: Yeah, well, there you go. It'll be about the, the guy who can't pee and becomes a, a pee balloon of toxin horribleness that derails the that whole... That just
1: sounds horribly unpleasant. Yeah.
2: The other one that I went to live, by the way, was, uh, it was in Salt Lake City, and it was about the utah's first governor and then suddenly in the middle it derailed about a guy who was a grave robber for years
1: yep stealing bunch of people's clothes
2: yeah good story but crazy anyway oh, yeah, no. that's how i'm doing i'm trying my best to stay distracted and and then today i had i was just, i was so pissed off today for work related reasons that i forgot entirely that like one of my boss's co-workers was in an office and i was trying really hard not to curse but i was still sitting at my desk going like what anyway
1: that's why i encourage everyone and i know it's different you know different things have an area where you can just go and curse and scream and yell typically in my it's a cooler of some form is where most people i work with go to just you know yell obscenities
2: and because of that too i didn't get to work out today which makes me grumpy but all right anyway that's me how are you
1: uh all in all i'm in a pretty decent mood i mean i'm working through my painting backlog making progress i'm in a good painting zone so that helps alleviate any residual
2: anger all right then how about you take care of your privilege in that you get to do in this recording before we move on to our topic
1: yeah, let's talk about the people that uh, make this free to you by helping support this podcast. Our wonderful, wonderful patrons. They are Pam Gelly, Marquis, Chris Chipman, River Gelly, Crook, Arthur Crane, Kevin Bay, Brandon M., John Vinnels, Kit Kenny, Seth Decker, Dona Lucy, Patrick Hansen, L, Scott Rubin, Derek Ticotti, and Peter Cook. Now, if you'd like to join the illustrious season, head over to patreon.com forward slash Geeks with If you join at the $5 tier, not only will you get all sorts of extra content, but Patreon will actually give us some of that money because they're nice like that.
2: Oh, that's news to me. First time hearing about it. Interesting. All right. Well, anyway, the topic. Where normally I'd be like, "Hey Ulrich, what's the topic?" Ha 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 ha. I don't really don't know what it is. But today I'm just going to get right into it because it's actually a topic that I brought up uh, a couple weeks ago, and it's something that I've been thinking about for years actually. And so I was, I was having a conversation with someone at work, and I was mm-hmm. like, you know. This might be worth recording, at the very least to try to, like, kind of pick through it as a concept. Which is, and I think I've mentioned a little bit of this in previous recordings, but never in a full-on discussion. But I call it something like, uh, medium, or how, how, how do I phrase it? I had a certain pair of words for you. The ability of a piece of art to utilize... Oh, medium utilization. There we go. the The degree to which a medium, or a, a piece of art, makes use of the medium in which it's being told. As opposed to telling a story in spite of its medium or regardless of its medium, and that sounds very esoteric. So let me get more specific about what I first, what first got me thinking about this. I've watched animation of various kinds my whole life, and I was a teenager. I got into anime, and I'm not really that in anime anymore, but you know, few small exceptions. A few years back, there was an anime that came out called Mob Psycho 100. And if you are any fan of One and his material, um, you already know all about this and probably where I'm going. But unlike a lot of anime, Mob Psycho 100 is originally made by essentially a webcomic person. Not really a mangaka. Like, if you looked at One, which is the name of the guy, if you looked at his material, it would look, for lack of a better term, childish. Amateurish. Because he wasn't a professional. He's much better now, but... Not the point. The point is, because his material looked so simple when it was animated into an anime, his character designs were still really simple. And because they were really simple, they were able to animate a lot more. So very little of the show doesn't have motion, movement, flourish in it. When two characters are talking to each other, they're gesturing and moving their bodies like real people do. And suddenly I became violently aware of all the anime I'd ever seen that was so much of two or more characters standing there not moving as their lips flapped and then just dialogue came out. Now, from a top-down perspective, I get why that happens. It's a budget thing. But once I became hyper-aware of it by seeing an anime that didn't do that, I realized... This show is properly utilizing the strength of its medium, animation, in a way that these other shows are not. And that got me thinking about what that concept means for other things. Now I'm talking a lot, and I kind of shared this with Ulrich a bit in, in text. I, I don't know how well I got through, so does that make sense?
1: Oh yeah, and I think we've talked around this idea a lot Because way, 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 way the fuck back in the archives, we talked about the live-action adaptation of Full Metal Alchemist for Netflix.
2: Yeah, vaguely. And we kind of
1: talked about the idea of anime being translated to live-action and how sometimes that works. But if the thing is so grounded in the visual aesthetic, see Cowboy Bebop, it doesn't translate to that live-action very well.
2: Yeah, well, it's funny because I have always argued that if we look at Fullmetal Alchemist and Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood. Fullmetal Alchemist in my opinion, and I actually know Oryx pretty much on the same board as me the original Fullmetal Alchemist basically functions independent of the medium it's told in. It's a story and I, I don't, it's really hard for me to convey why this is, but it's the kind of story I feel working in book form, in comic form, in animation yes. form, and could absolutely work in live action if you have the right money and, uh, you know, people doing it. But point is, it's a story I feel like very much is medium independent. Brotherhood is a lot more ensconced in what the original manga actually is, and because of that, it's a lot more tied to the traditions of Japanese manga, and thus it feels like less transferable to things other than anime or manga, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I think what we said killed the Netflix adaptation was twofold of one. They tried to cram a bunch of story into 90 minutes and they didn't have the budget for it. It all went to Ed, and everything else has kind of felt cheap.
2: Yeah, I don't even remember. I know I watched it, but I don't remember it. I've blocked it out entirely. Yeah, I know.
1: I just remember, I know we talked about it. And again, I remember we're just like, this. this doesn't work because it is one of those things that, yeah, no, it's really a simple story. It's basically... Pre World War II Germany, with a bit with alchemy actually being taking the place of science, with a bunch of other stuff sprinkled in, but that's the setting. Well, here's totally doable,
2: and here's one of the most important things about that, right? When we talk about utilization of medium, the first question is, okay, what is the strength of the medium? What is the thing that this piece should be trying to go with? If we look at live action, I feel like it's pretty obvious. The main strength of live action is tangibility, the feeling that what you are watching is real or could actually be outside. And the more that a piece that's in live action diverts from that, the the less it's using the strength of being in live action. The reason, like, for example, the Cowboy Bebop uh, live action didn't work for... And I didn't watch all of it, so I'm not here like to really claim to be some sort of expert on why Cowboy Bebop didn't work. I'm just saying from what I've seen people talk about... One of the main reasons is the extreme use of of CG backgrounds and green screen filming without like the the Mandalorian style like technology they have made that feeling of tangibility completely fall away.
1: Yeah, and I would say the big reason to live action is twofold: one, tangibility, and two, scale. Like when you do something big and gigantic with people in sets you can kind of convey that and i'm gonna piss people off but i don't give a shit with cowboy Bebop, we watched cowboy bebop we talked about a lot of it over on the patreon go listen to that and i think what we kind of came with like this is an interesting story held up by incredible animation like the stuff or, and music it's beautiful paintings and unfortunately if you're not copying that beautiful artistic style you're just telling me another story that's not really... It needs the music. It needs that artistic background. It needs that beautiful, vibrant, really cool jaw-dropping stuff.
2: Yeah, and you can tell that there was some level that the Cowboy Bop was trying to get it. They that, tried to that ape, ape first... it with, the whole, with the, it had
1: a really interesting film stuff. It's like, eh, yeah. it's not enough.
2: That first trailer they dropped, for instance, hit it really well. But by leaning very hard into stylistic like concepts of of like editing... I think they were honestly I think that someone like Edgar Wright would have been a bad like a good choice for trying Edgar to do this. Wright
1: well Edgar Wright would have it would they were trying to do the Edgar Wright they were trying to like okay we cannot do these beautiful you know animations but we're going to take this kind of weird quirky sense and translate that cuz Edgar Wright does have the secret sauce of taking that almost surrealness and making it palpable
2: yeah it's why he's one of my favorite directors possibly my favorite director I got to think on that He is the the
1: not-evil version of Wes Anderson.
2: (laughs) I love Wes Anderson too, but sure. Wes (laughs) Anderson's
1: the other side of that coin of like, okay, you've taken what he does and you've gone the other direction to the point like, listen, I do not like Wes Anderson. He is an anathema to my taste, but I respect the hell out of what he does. It's just everything about that is like, it's,
2: at the very least, it's better to be in, idiosyncratic in a way you hate than generic in a way you don't remember. Oh,
1: 100%. And that's why, you know, again, two sides of the same coin.
2: Sure, sure. I agree with that. Anyway, so that's why I like live action. If you make something in live action, but it is so obviously not live action to the point where it doesn't really feel tangible or the scale feels less like, again, a real giant thing and more like a picture of the thing, then I'm not saying that can't succeed. I'm just saying you are not utilizing your medium to its fullest. That's another important thing I want to point out. A good piece could have low media utilization, and a bad piece could have high media utilization. I think that's very common. I think pieces that are generally very good make good use of their media, but they don't necessarily have to. In fact, I think some of the best dramas that are basically just people talking, like dialogue stuff. Now, I'm not gonna show anyone's acting because I know that, like, uh, what's that? Uh, My dinner with Andre is basically just yeah. is basically just an acting uh, showcase for the two main actors. So I'm not I'm not trying to take away from that. I'm just saying that when your story is nothing but two characters talking and dialogue, you, that's the kind of story you can probably tell really well in book form or comic form. I
1: you know. I disagree. I think if it's just a conversation you need the human element and the human acting to make it compelling. Otherwise you're just reading endless amounts of just dialogue.
2: I don't know. I, I feel like reading well-written dialogue is, I mean, not to go to the pretentious path, but that's what most Shakespeare is. Just people. Talking. And Shakespeare
1: is a play. It's meant to be performed. That's one of the weird things. I always get why we read Shakespeare. You know, that's a good point. It, it's so weird that we read plays. It's like, That's not how this is meant to be interpreted.
2: You know what? I totally accept that. I will rescind my statement. I'm the one who brought that up, too. So, yeah, I'll totally accept that. Sure. But, no, let's talk
1: about Shakespeare real quick, because that's a fun one. Sure. Uh, It does work. It works. His stuff works across all sorts of various mediums.
2: Well, what's really funny about Shakespeare that I think is that – and I found this out only a few years ago – the way that – most people think how Shakespeare is supposed to sound is not actually accurate. I watched some videos of people who were like dialect experts, historical dialect experts, and basically in the the era of time that Shakespeare was operating and in the class that he was operating in, remember most Shakespearean plays were actually done for essentially a wide audience and not the nobles, which was actually kind of crazy at the time. The accent that his players would have spoken with is much closer to what we think of as an Irish accent than a British accent, an English accent.
1: My brain immediately goes to Cockney and that's why we don't, that's that's why, that's why Shakespeare is not performed in the traditional sense.
2: But that's actually why some lines that are part of poems that don't appear to rhyme to an English, a normal, like an American English speaker, actually do rhyme in that context when you have someone speaking in that that way you, there's a great video you can find online of someone uh, of these two guys one does the Shakespeare line in contemporary uh, like English and then the other does it in this the way that it would have done you can hear that the, the cadence is entirely different. So that alone is already an argument that yeah Shakespeare's plays are meant to be acted out and played in uh, not not just by live but by like a very specific contextual. Kind of performance.
1: Yeah, but let's just talk about how it translates. We have seen Shakespeare in written form when we all read the plays in school, and like, okay, that works. We have seen it performed with
2: physical people, I'm like, yeah, okay, that works. Well, I'll say with the reading, in read animation. It. Well, hold on, I'll say with the reading real quick because I brought up the reading because I was going to say that like it it works really well as reading, and it does if you can get past a certain level because Shakespeare is famous boring the fuck out of students it yes when read on page unless you know what you're looking for it's very hard to get into I understand that I'm just saying that I enjoy reading Shakespeare but okay I
1: also maintain the comedies do not work written they must be performed because you're not getting the jokes if you're just reading it
0: hmm I, I think there's know. a lot of
1: pan- I think there's a lot of pantomime that goes into the performance of performing a Shakespeare comedy mm, sure sure. But anyways, it's one of those ones, like, it works across all the various mediums, and that's more of an adaptation thing than directly taking what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare, because we're just retelling the same story,
2: so I don't know if that counts as well. And I want to be clear, I've always been a proponent of you can take any story, any story, and adapt it into any medium, but I also think that sometimes in order to adapt it to a specific medium, you have to adapt it to that medium in such a way... That it basically changes what it. Is. I'm I'm paraphrasing something I learned from from movie Bob Chipman a long time or not learned but I, I heard him phrase a long time. But I I very much agree that I think that you can make not just a movie. I think you can make a game, a book, a comic, an animation out of any story. But if you're not making it into whatever you're adapting into to utilize whatever that medium is meant to do, then why are you even doing it? I feel like yeah. one of the biggest Ways we can see this failure is in the predom- is in the predominance of movie to video game adaptation, where basically they just oh, yeah. wanted to quickly make the movie with some interactable bits. So it's like that's not you're not making use of a the game as a medium. You're just trying to get a quick cash grab by putting the visuals yeah. of the movie. They in don't mode.
1: make many of those anymore. Yeah, but there but was a while. There was like a good Excellent fifteen years where of it was- a generation where <laughs> movie tie in games were the worst present to get from your grandparents. Because, like, oh, you meant well, but this is going to be
2: terrible. Yeah, like, there were a handful that were good, but most of them were generic garbage.
1: Or, again, we even didn't have some on this. Talking about books that you made into movies. And we've all we've all got our, you know, go-tos. Like, this is my, you totally fucked up the book.
2: Yeah, which is why, honestly, funny enough, one of the best examples of what I'm talking about now is the movie Adaptation, which is... Have you seen Adaptation, Ulrich? I don't think so but I've
1: heard of it so I'm trying to think why I know it.
2: Adaptation is one of the most insane ideas that I feel like I've ever seen done in movie form. It is so the book that it's based off of that it's adapted from is like a story about this woman and her flowers and like her her life with flowers. I'm I'm very much simplifying but Basically, when they went to adapt it, I believe it was Charlie Kaufman. If it wasn't Charlie Kaufman, it was someone making fun of Charlie Kaufman. But he couldn't figure out, as a screenwriter, how to turn it into a compelling story. So instead, he wrote a screenplay about himself adapting the book. So the movie that's an adaptation of the book, loosely, is about the very concept of adapting the book. In fact, there's a scene in the movie that, like made my brain explode where we see the character writing the scene that he is currently in of him adapting himself into the adaptation of the book it's really hard to even describe what's happening there you just kind of have to see it but it's a perfect example of okay we can adapt this into a movie but we're gonna have to really retool it in order to make it like a a movie narrative (laughs) yeah so real quick let's talk about our golden
1: boy of the podcast who uses the fuck out of his medium Genry Tartakovsky.
2: Okay, sure, yeah. Gendry Tartakovsky is... One thing that I love about Tartakovsky specifically, and it's him and Vince Gilligan, I feel like, are the masters of this, is his usage of silence. Yes. And why that's important in animation is because... So, Gendry Tartakovsky is an animation master. But what he'll do is he'll make it so that there's no dialogue, there's no music, it's literally nothing but the animation that you're watching.
1: Like, he might put in some... Real quick, if you do not know who we're talking about... This is Dexter's Lab. This is Samurai Jack. This is Primal. This is Symbionic Titans. This is Unicorn Warriors Eternal.
2: Yeah, and I'm not saying... So those are
1: his five best examples of him doing his thing.
2: Yeah, and I'm not saying that he doesn't use music and sound at times. There are plenty of Samurai Jack episodes that make great use of music and sound. I'm just saying that you can tell there are many examples where he just lets everything else just fall away, just animation. Arguably, one of the best episodes of of Samurai Jack, period, involves... Jack fighting with a ninja and because he's fighting with a ninja and it's a stealth thing he has to cover his mouth until the the entire end of the episode is just these two ninjas in full black and white. Like, he's he's even gotten rid of most colors. He basically reduces it down to just two colors and no sound and it's one of the best endings to like an action piece ever
1: the characters literally disappear into the background of whatever if it's the white he disappears into the white if he disappears into the black he goes into the black he even does this early on with an episode called the archers where basically he has a whole scene where jack has to cover his eyes and learn to listen and it's nothing but ambient sound that slowly paints a picture
2: yeah exactly Bimal
1: has almost no real dialogue it is told entirely through grunts groans and animation.
2: Well, it's funny, I'm not, I've tried to get into Primal, and I think that maybe if I had some drinks with Ulrich, I can sit down and have a really good time with it. But similar to what he said earlier, I respect Primal more than I have actually have any, like, personal feelings of it. Because you can tell it's the kind of story that, that Tarkovsky was always building to. It's, it's like, pure, uh, concentrated Tarkovsky.
1: Yes, it is 100%. And I love it, because again, there's no dialogue throughout most of this uh, show. You have to figure out the plot just by watching it. And I famously, this is one of the shows I watch with my daughter. Judge me, if you will. she loved the hell out of it. And three years old, she's putting it together and picking it up. Because, again, she doesn't have to try and figure out scene. She can just watch and go, okay, he's looking at him this way because this is how he feels. He's having this reaction because of this. It is purely using, like, animation. If I could only tell you this story through drawing, could I still communicate it?
2: Now... If you're listening to this, I feel like you might be thinking at this point, because I was thinking of it. This sounds a lot like, oh, it's it's only about mediums that are engaging on more senses. What could something like a book or, or that, like, what would be the usage of that medium? I'll tell you, because I have a good example, actually, I think, of something that happened to me recently. I'm currently reading The Lord of the Rings. Like, full. Proper. I've never actually read the whole thing. I am about 700 pages into it, because I have the version of it that's all one book, and... I just passed the point where Shelob shows up. She hasn't finished attacking them yet, but they they drove her off the first time. And for most of the book so far, I can't help but think, and no offense to any pure Lord of the Rings purists, we have some friends we brought on the podcast who are, but for most of the book so far, I think the movie is just superior. I think several decisions the movie made make a better story, particularly when it comes to Aragorn, who I find kind of insufferable in the book, but I love in the movie. But... Everything about Shelob, how Shelob is described, how her her layer is described, is way more intense in the book. And one of the simple ways they do that is the first paragraph that is not necessarily in Shelob's mind, but it kind of is. Like, you're getting... The book hasn't even told you what she is yet. You just know she's a hulking shape in in the darkness. And then it starts giving you this these little descriptions of, like... How she sees the light, at, you know, that she's following, and how long she's been there, and and what kind of relationship she actually has with Sauron. They have kind of a weird, but begrudging respect for each other, and those. Are the oh, cru- the deep
1: lore on Sauron and Shelob is is weird and yeah, but, fun.
2: But the point is, it doesn't it doesn't like delve deep into it, but it gives enough of these like extra extraneous details and descriptive things about how this character is feeling that are just not there in the movie at all, and you basically couldn't really convey in the movie without doing like an inner monologue even that probably would break the flow of the movie entirely like i don't know how you could convey what's conveyed in this section of the book in movie form they're wrong she looks cool in the movie but she's just a big ass spider in the yeah. book she feels like an eldritch deity of some sort well she is <laughs> yeah, but she doesn't feel like that in the movie, is my point. She no, because like, that's oh. a big
1: spider. And Peter Jackson, they're like, yeah, hey, there used to be these big spiders that scared me as a kid, so that's what she's modeling, big scary spiders.
2: Works. Yeah, but so that's an example where, like, the book is doing something that I feel like only books can really do.
1: Oh, yeah. No, my go-to example for that is feel like an easy one, but it's Stephen King.
2: There are hundreds
1: of Stephen King adaptions. There's maybe a dozen really great ones, but I don't think even the best ones match the books. Well,
2: there's an important thing, too, is how many good Stephen King adaptations are faithful adaptations? Because the best adaptation is basically, inarguably, The Shining, but it's also the one that basically deviates from the source material. It does
1: its own thing. Green Mile's in there, but Green Mile isn't, trying to do the same thing that The Shining is.
2: Yeah. I mean, I might say Shawshank, but I never actually read Shawshank's Shawshank. Shawshank's also in there. But anyway, go on. Because I haven't read but a whole lot of Stephen King, so I've read, like, one of Stephen King. So
1: My go-to example that I frequently use is It, which, on paper, should have scared the living shit out of me as a movie, because I fucking don't fuck with clowns. Fuck those creepy fucks.
2: I do think that the first It movie was really good, but...
1: I think they're both just okay. But, anyways... There is a scene in the book When I was reading it That legitimately gave me goosebumps And it's just talking about this kid He's sitting, um, he's been in a fight with his dad He's a real shithead Because all Stephen King characters are some flavor of shithead And he's sitting on a levee And he's just dangling his feet And suddenly he just thinks about something coming up out of the water And getting him And he gets kind of freaked out So he starts walking And he starts you know just getting away And he hears something that just sounds like the slapping of feet So he starts running a little faster and then he hears it a little bit louder. And then he gets a sense of dread in the back of his mind as it gets louder and closer and louder and closer until it's right on top of him. And the big reveal of this whole big terrifying thing is it's the Man from The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. But it is written in such a way, that I'm talking about it, I got goosebumps just talking about it, because the way it is written, you are there in this kid's mind being chased by this monster, and it embodies that sense of dread we all had when we were kids walking down a dark hallway and we got freaked out.
2: Yeah, I feel like right there already, and I'm sure there are other things too, I'm not claiming to be a literary expert by any means, but the ability to really put us in the same headspace as a character by literally giving us their headspace is something that I feel like books can do better than any medium movies can do it with a lot of like you know acting performances and music cues and stuff like that but there's something about the specific descriptive way books can literally put you there and if you've got a writer who has a good grasp of how to how to use descriptive language very well that's really unparalleled i think in any medium
1: Oh, yeah. No, you're literally right over your shoulder. And Stephen King's secret is he writes so much about this world. You know, the color of the gravel in the parking lot of this character that's about to die. And if you don't like Stephen King, you're like, why the fuck is he describing all this shit? I don't need to know. But if you kind of understand, it's like because you have a clear picture in your head. So you are now literally there. So when he does the monster jump out, go oogie, boogie, boogie you feel like you are in danger of getting jumped out and yelled oogie boogie boogie
2: at. Okay, now I'm curious, I feel like we we found kind of a structure, and I want to recap it a bit for a moment here. So, live action movies and television have the strength of tangibility and feeling of scale, which comes, I would argue that's the t- same thing as tangibility, because it's basically big things, and not just like huge things, or small things, or intimate things, have that feeling of, realness to them. So that's live action. Animation is like fluidity of imagination, I feel like, which is something no other medium... The fact that you can animate, you can make anything happen, and the fact that it's still in motion, something like Samurai Jack's uh, ninja sequence, which, honestly, I do not think that sequence could be adapted into any medium, period. Maybe comics could pull it off, but it wouldn't be nearly as effective. Well, there's a
1: fluidity to it, and the best thing about animation is you get to ignore physics which is probably why Tarkovsky's Star Wars stuff is some of the best stuff even if it is just toy commercials is there's a physicality and a fluidness that you just can't do in any other medium because when things go crunch and move five thirty feet your brain goes man that makes sense this is a cartoon I have cartoon logic enabled
2: exactly so I'm going to call that fluidity of imagination which it, there are kind like don't get me wrong. I have nothing against, like, Power Rangers or something, or or wushu, like, wire flicks, but when you see live-action stuff happen that's very obviously originally an animated thing, there's a stiffness to it, and I can the get The pa- body just
1: doesn't move that way.
2: Yeah, and I can get and past that if your other aspects are really good, but it's something that animation just does inherently better. For books, our, our strength here is real inner descriptiveness, something that you can't get in, like, any other medium, really, is that level of I am in the same brain space as... Something I'm reading about. So that leaves. I'd also,
1: argue books have the advantage of you can fill in the gaps. Like your brain is very good about filling in the gaps and doing the rest of the stuff around it.
2: So because we talked, because we mentioned books and we mentioned animation, I'm going to go into the middle for our next one, which is comics. Now, from my perspective, one of the main strengths of comics is that that idea of the imagination and that idea of the like the inner thing, not as strong as either one of them. But they're, one of the biggest strengths of comics, as far as I'm concerned, is the ability to sit with something. Like, watching an animation and being able to take as much time with any section of it as you want to really take in the details. So, like, if I look at a really beautiful piece of animation, if there's a lot of details in it, and and we're doing, like, good animation, I'm probably going to miss a lot of things. And i got to re-watch frequently now i'm not saying that's inherently a bad thing but if you do that same thing in a comic i had someone send me uh, a couple weeks ago a panel from a batman comic that apparently took the artists like like couple weeks to do and all the panel is is the bat family in a kitchen making breakfast like, one of the Robins and Batgirl are arguing over chocolate chip pancakes, uh, Damien is climbing on a counter trying to get something, and Batman's just, like, looking around, and he, he pulls off his cowl, and he goes, what the... And Jason Todd's there, and he's like, hey, they they tricked me into coming, too. And there's just so much detail going on that I can just sit there and stare at that picture for, for like, an hour, picking out what's oh. going on and what's interesting, and that's something that you can't do in animation... Normally. I mean, if you have the ability to pause, which admittedly, but I'm saying that if you're watching animation, that fluidity part inherently buffs against this concept. Like, you know
1: what yeah. I mean? Oh, no, 100%. Like, a beautiful splash panel is like a painting, like a really well-done splash panel. Also, comics kind of do what live-action can, but in the way of capturing the sense of scale.
2: Yeah, and a really good comic artist can make you interpret motion there's yes. there's a think a,
1: about that you have watched if you listen to this podcast most likely you've read a comic how many times have you watched a superhero punch another superhero and it's just you see the fist launch and you see it connect you never see it move but your brain has filled in the whole motion of it
2: yeah there's a there's a youtuber that is named Super Eye Patch Wolf. He does these long-form uh, essays about, like, why shows, mostly anime, but he also explores a lot of different things. He had a whole thing about, like, pro wrestling, for example, and if you're not interested in it, it's, it's good stuff. But he, he gives an example of, like, Akira Toriyama. I have talked before about how I don't actually think Dragon Ball holds up very well as an anime, and I still stand for it. i said pissing
1: everyone off tonight.
2: I'll fucking bring it on. Let's go. But as a manga, the original Dragon Ball is almost unparalleled in its ability to convey motion. He illustrated... He showed just one picture. Like, Super Eyepatch will have showed this picture in his video of of Goku fighting... Young kid Goku fighting this, like, giant dude. And in this single picture, you can interpret easily about four motions of, like, him punching, Goku dodging, and jumping, and, and like... And all of it is just in how and where motion marks are. And it's done in such that your eye, which in Asian uh, manga, you you read from right to left. And so that motion translates as you read from right to left in a way that you don't see that skillfully, even in like a lot of good comics. And I'm counting manga as comics for purposes of this discussion. Let's talk about the
1: other thing that kind of, again, I feel like we're not addressing.
2: There are a fair amount of people, I've
1: known them, that are not book people, do not enjoy reading, can't do it. Mm-hmm. But comics are their jam. There is something about the combination of the art and the words that makes a book for them work. And there are plenty of books that have been translated into comics that are really good. So that one does kind of jump to genres. But it's fascinating about what is this weird little combination of why does this work in both these mediums, and it can be read with some comics in all the mediums. Go on. <laughs> well, let's think about it. Like we have comics where it's hand drawn. That was Captain America in the comic. Cool. Captain America in an animated show. Cool. Captain America in live action. Cool. Captain America in a book. I know they exist, but I've never read a novelization of a comic.
2: I was just thinking about like a a Spider Man book. What that would be like. But I know they
1: exist because when I was little, I had the Phoenix Saga in paperback, like a book, and I. Couldn't get into it, because X-Men continuity is so ridiculously, impenetrably dense.
2: Yeah, I do feel like, again, the, the strength there would be... Like, Spider-Man spends a lot of his time in both comic and animation with an inner monologue that we hear. But a book would allow us not to just hear the inner monologue, but would be able to hear, like, the, the flavor of that monologue in a way that doesn't really happen outside of that. But I do get what you mean. There is a, a certain level of, especially very visual stories where like that vi- but let's like, think about like
1: there are some graphic novels that are just basically a novel with a couple pictures thrown in to hold
2: your interest what's funny is there are some books i feel like that are very visual but it's in how they describe it because like your imagination has to a lot of times build up whatever is being described on the page and some yes. authors are very very good at making that happen But basically, no matter how good they are, even the best ones, it's still not the same thing as actually seeing straight up pictures of what the story is going on.
1: Oh yeah, no, like I'm trying to think about it is like, okay, Watchmen, very dense, very wordy book. Has, would it work without the the pictures and the art to, you know, make it carry through? My brain's like, no, no, it's, it's the marriage of the two. It's Alan Moore's writing and Dave Gibbons art that makes that
2: work. Well, anyway, also, there's a big,
1: long rant of Alan Moore.
2: There's a whole other conversation, too, about how if you're deconstructing a medium, but you're doing it in a different medium, are you're really kind of hampering yourself. So, like, Watchmen, because it is basically, like, the premier deconstruction of the comic book superhero, kind of has to be a comic book in order to get that across,
1: yeah, but I mean, we've had the movie and the TV show, which we're not going to go into here because that's a whole other thing.
2: I will say though, the movie gets away with it by basically being a deconstruction of superhero movies. The television show is not really deconstruction at all. It's it's its own. It's like a separate conversation. It, it plays in the
1: world, which I know pisses a lot of people off,
2: but yeah. But we here at this podcast like the Watchmen show.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. So I'm just thinking about. But I think the thing that's added by Watchmen, and again, this is a thing that's added in comics, is you can have quiet panels you can have a whole page of nothing but quiet panels and you can't replicate that in a book
2: that's true you literally can't there has to always be words the best you can do is describe a quiet scene but that's still not the same thing because you are reading the words there are words that are happening to you the reader
1: yeah you just again fun example in secret invasion the comic there's a whole big event where we find out, you know, a bunch of the heroes have been gone and missing, and we have this whole big thing where Hawkeye discovers that his wife Mockingjay has been had been kidnapped and was one of the scrolls, and he realizes that one of the big events that they had gone through. Hawkeye has a horrible run there for a bit, but they she had been pregnant, she had a miscarriage, she had lost the baby, and he discovers all of that was the scroll fucking with him.
2: Oh. Damn. And
1: it's just this silent panel of Hawkeye on his knees just kind of, like, reacting to that.
2: Huh. I haven't heard and about then, that one. Yeah.
1: Again, that is something that you could do in a book or you could do in a show. Admittedly, sidebar, moving...
2: Secret Invasion is one of those big events I actually happen to know nothing about. Like, I knew Civil War pretty well before it became, like, you know, a movie and whatnot. But I don't know Secret Invasion basically at all.
1: <laughs> a lot of people don't like it. I still enjoy it because part of, it's a lot of nostalgia. Thing. But anyways... It's set between this big action scene and we have this big reveal of, oh my gosh, all these heroes we thought were, you know, heroes, connecting with things, and then this big, hey, let's check in on Hawkeye. By the way, this big, terrible event that happened never happened.
2: Hmm. And we're just going to
1: pause on this for a second.
2: Yeah, okay. I'm just trying to think of like how more to phrase. I Because I like the idea of calling animation fluidity of imagination. I like the idea of calling the strength of books like... Uh, internal... I'm gonna call it internal immersiveness. What... In Yes, I am aiming for, like, very catchy, buzzwordy, simple descriptions, but I like having those on hand as tools. That's why I thought I'd try to come up with medium utilization in the first place. So what do we really call, like, what this thing we're describing comics can do, where it's this, like, combination of you can sit with something for as long as you need to, while also getting that, like, breadth and scale of imagination there. So if... If animation is fluidity of imagination, maybe it's more like what's what's the opposite of fluidity when something is like really sturdy and it's
1: rigidity. It's you know rigid rigidity, but that's not doesn't. Uh, I want a more positive
2: word. That. Yeah, rigidity. of... there's got to be something. It's like the when something is um movable uh stability
1: storm. concrete
2: stability. I like stability. Stability's stability. Stability. Yeah, maybe the stability of imagination that it's, we're getting to explore the same kind of imaginative spaces, but we get to do it at a much more, it's, here's the stabilized thing. It's like the difference between watching, you know, looking at, a, like, looking at a statue and looking at, like, you know, a waterfall or something.
1: Yeah. Now, the thing we haven't talked about is the things that dance across all the mediums or multiple mediums. And multiple Well, before, before
2: the we do thing. that, I want to do, I want to cover one more medium. As, okay. As, which is... Uh, interactive mediums. Video, oh, okay, video games. video games. I was primarily. wondering
1: if we could throw video games into this or
2: not. Yeah, because by the very nature of calling it an interactive medium, it's very obvious with the very specific strength of video games. And I will not go into my my rant that Ulrich has gotten on me about before about the, the dynamics of play, or the aesthetics of play, correction, even though it is very relevant to this conversation. Maybe another time. But the point you is... you can
1: find a way to make it interesting... <laughs>
2: Well, it's, only, it's a three-page paper. They can read it themselves if they find it interesting. Anyway, point is that games, by being interactive, their main strength, well, one of their main strengths, they actually have many strengths that are kind of unique to them specifically, but I'd say the primary strength is that real feeling that you, the person partaking in the piece of art, are directly connected to it. That feeling of true immersion. Like yes. other things can immerse you. Books I've I've read books to the point where I basically forgot that I was really existing. But yep. but games can actually play with the concept that you are in control of what's happening. Therefore the consequences and or rewards that are in the story are directly a result of your action. And that's something that no other medium can accomplish. And some of the best games will actually kind of pervert that concept. I mean, one of the reasons why Undertale is so amazing is because it basically is a massive commentary on the very concept of how a player engages with the fictional worlds that they do, and the concept of stakes when you can just reset everything as you will, which are things that no other medium can can do
1: (laughs) yeah no video games are really interesting because it combines a lot of what we've talked about before in the bigger strengths not necessarily the tangibility of it
2: but well plus video games by their very nature can also basically combine all of the other mediums in themselves you can have a game where you have splash pages like comics that are you know rewards for various things that you can have them have fluidity of uh imagination whether it's you know in brilliant cutscenes or brilliant bits of things that you yourself are doing anyone who's a fighting game player is going to be familiar with that concept you can have books that are literally in them whether it's just books you find like plenty of the ones in skyrim several of which are actually very good or the idea of essentially an interactive book like everything bioware does so like every other medium can exist within the structure of a video game. But again, I think the primary strength of it is the fact that you, more than any other medium, feel like you are part of the piece. Like your literally your action is required for it to function, which is why in my opinion, the games that good or not, do not make use of their medium are ones that can be criticized as feeling like More like a movie. Yeah. Examples. I'm not going to sit here and tell anyone that Uncharted is bad. It's way too popular, big, and influential of a franchise for me to say anything like that about it. But I've heard many people who are even fans of Uncharted say that it's possibly more fun to watch someone else play it. Because you're basically just watching a movie. And to me, that means that Uncharted from the beginning was probably better off as a passive passive medium instead of an interactive medium
1: Uh, there's a whole thing there because there's the argument like all walking simulators and that whole thing but one of my favorite gaming experiences was uh, Firewatch which is basically a walking simulator but you got to control the pace of your story yeah how the story unfolds is you control when you get to the various things
2: yeah I'm gonna say it's again it's not a simple thing I'm just trying to give like a, a loose example of this is an example of what I'm gonna call a good game with bad media utilization
1: oh there's plenty of that like and that's my issue like i know and like call of duty is an easy one to kick but some pe- again people really do heavily engage with that one in the sense of they feel the tension of it all it doesn't have that for me for a multitude of reasons mm-hmm. but that's what i think like is working for people
2: yeah okay now, I know there are other mediums we could talk, but I honestly don't have enough experience with, say, radio as a as an artistic medium to really comment on it. And I mean, we're podcasters. It's a, it's a bit too
1: meta to discuss the nature of podcasting yeah. as a media.
2: Form. I, I will say that I think one of the main strengths of something like podcasting or like VTubing or like streaming is a feeling of genuine connection, which is why I think the ones that break that, are the ones that you can tell are putting on a show or an act, but that is an entire different discussion, and I'm not about to sit here and accidentally throw shade at any of my contemporaries or betters, because most of them are better than me. So, <laughs> move well, on.
1: Maybe we'll discuss that if we do a part two, because there is, like, a fun breakdown of the nature of podcasting, and the art of podcasting. But I don't want to do that, because that, that feels like, we we're, no, we're, yeah. we're, we're getting, we're flying too What places, being, so.
2: I feel like between live action, animation, comic, book, and games, we're covering... The, mo- the the widest majority of how an average person interacts with with pieces, yes, painting and music, especially music, is another one. But uh, again, I feel like that's those... a guest
1: topic. We need someone that understands
2: music better than yeah, I do. Yeah, those are. I could talk music because I do a lot of talking, but but still, music and I and... want someone with a musical
1: theory degree to explain how a sure. comic can be translated to video game because it's there, like the Indiana Jones theme song. Is in that discussion somewhere?
2: Yeah. Hell, I feel like the Superman theme is a perfect example of it conveys all the feelings of Superman without having to have any visuals attached to it. But not the point. Point is, those are mediums that are so far out of our particular wheelhouse and are actually rather large in the discussion that I think we're going to just put those in the okay. We gotta we gotta draw the line somewhere, and these five mediums are a good line to draw.
1: We need reinforcements for those ones because those are those are too big.
2: Sure. Now that we've landed on just these five for this discussion. What, are, what did you have in mind when you were talking about aspects that are part of all media utilization, at least for these Well, five?
1: I was more saying there were certain things that have successfully weaved through all the mediums. The biggest, most easy, direct one is Star Wars. Star Wars works as a book. Star Wars works as a movie. Star Wars works in animation. Star Wars works as a video game. Star Wars works in music. Star Wars works in radio
2: play. What's funny, though, is I think there's a very specific reason for that. And, again... Yeah, hold
1: on. Pause that one. Okay. Because we are going to do an episode discussing Star Wars and animation. Okay. Because there's a lot of Star Wars animation out there, and I want to talk about that. And that's a whole other conversation. But go on.
2: I was going to say, Star Wars... Yes, that first Star Wars was a narrative. It had a story. It had characters. It had a very important impact on society for a number of complicated reasons, uh, go watch any number of the infinite number of Star Wars video essays you can find on YouTube. There's almost as many of them as there are of The Matrix, if not more. Like Those are probably the two most talked about movies ever made. But I feel like the reason why Star Wars translates so well between any medium is because Star Wars is, for lack of a better term, is an aesthetic first, more than almost yes. anything else. It is. If,
1: I mean, you see Star Wars, you know, oh, that is Star Wars. Which ironically, that's another episode we have in the future.
2: Yeah. So Star Wars is a is a feeling. It's a vibe. It's it's a it's a constructed. You
1: can, you can show. It. You can pick it out of a lineup.
2: Yeah. And that's why even music that isn't necessarily from Star Wars can sound like Star Wars music. It's why things that are not Star Wars can feel Star Wars-like without you being able to point to that feels like this movie specifically. Star Wars is Warhammer
1: lot... also shares a lot of this, but not to the same extent.
2: I would say Warhammer shares this almost to a T. It's just that we haven't seen Warhammer prove itself in every medium like we've seen well, Star I'm
1: Wars. It's so like, we, we about I'm just saying like, Warhammer is recognizable as Warhammer. Well, that's what and I mean. Almost... I think... I but there's certain parts is like oh no that 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 doesn't necessarily jive together with
2: this but that, well what i'm saying is i think that the the strength of star wars as an intellectual property is coming from the same I don't know, to use a metaphor it's basically the same muscle as yes. as what warhammer is doing it's just it's star a wars, big
1: world that is a lot adaptable
2: yeah, it's just that Star Wars has done it longer and wider. And we might eventually get to a point where Warhammer does prove itself in every medium. We'll see when we get our first live-action thing. But it's saying it's the same concept, just to have a different... And there are some things that don't really function like that. Uh, let's Avatar. See. Avatar. <laughs> Avatar has
1: yet to work in any medium outside of the two that it has worked in. Comic, I hear good things about, but that's because it has a strong story. And again, a lot of what works for comics works for the show. And animation we have yet to see it work in live action and i don't know if it can
2: i think it can i i am more i think avatar would have a much harder time being a book than it would be anything else because avatar 100% is... like i don't know if
1: it would work as a book either because a lot of it is boy that kung fu combined with the defiance of physics of hurling and you know getting hit with rocks and shit and not imploding sure does look cool
2: yeah the concept of how like martial arts is so intrinsically tied and i don't know if there are like any good martial arts books i'm willing to i be don't know how wrong. you write
1: that because
2: martial arts
1: i mean but then again we read warhammer which is these big descriptions of these big battles and we go oh yeah no this is cool i can follow this
2: yeah but so, again i'm the one on the side of most of the time that doesn't work and it's very difficult to make work
1: so yeah i feel like maybe the and then he did the roundhouse kick into his face. is much harder to convey, like, written out than it actually would be showing, you know, Jackie even, Chan jumping off a wall and breaking a dude's jaw. Yeah.
2: And even if you do, even if you did have a great writer write out the description of what happens in something like The Raid, is it going to be as visceral an experience as seeing two real people doing that to each other?
1: Well, it's the speed. That's the other thing that, again, I think makes a lot of that work of, it is the speed and the fluidity of the motion. And that's where Avatar, I think, kind of stumbles. It's like, yeah, it's not the speed and the fluidity. It's the fun looseness that we have with animation of we can watch someone pick up a giant boulder, throw the boulder, get hit with the boulder, and it's because of animation, we have our own, you know, internal, like, oh, that that's okay, this is animated. Versus if we saw that in live action, it's either going to look goofy or our brains going to go, no, you wouldn't survive that. I that walk think... would crush you like a grape.
2: Here's what I'll say. I think that Avatar can absolutely be adapted into live action. In fact, I, I'm so far, the things I've read about the pa- production side of the currently in progress live action Netflix adaptation have me somewhat hopeful. More hopeful is the fact that the One Piece live action looks like it actually might be good.
1: Okay, uh, I wanted to talk to you about that. Because I think it looks like absolute ass.
2: That would put you in the minority.
1: Interesting. I look at this and go, and maybe this is just my own personal thing. I do not like the aesthetic... Of One Piece and seeing it translated into live action just doubles home like these are dumb designs to me. Why the hell would anyone think, would, yo, yeah, no, that looks cool. This just looks, I don't know. Like that to me felt like it missed a step in the translation.
2: But it, admittedly, I, I, I do not
1: like One Piece as.
2: Yeah, I'm like going to say, it. I don't think that has anything to do with quality. I think it has to do with your particular aesthetic taste. Because, that and now, much be the, I'm ready to be proven wrong because animated adaptations live once have historically been terrible. But I've followed the One Piece live-action production for a while now. The actors are amazing. They have great chemistry with each other. Their designs in practice both look faithful but also uh, tangible to me. The effects that we do see feel realistic to the point where I would expect them to. Hell, Luffy's bending in the trailers I've seen looks way better than Mr. Fantastic has ever looked for example. And the fact that they actually physically built ships means that feeling of tangibility that is the live-actions thing is really there. When they're stepping on the the, the Baratier, which is a ship restaurant, that is an actual fucking ship restaurant they built. And so that feeling of tangibility comes through, I feel. Now, one piece more than anything is a character piece. It's literally... As long a story as it is, because while there's great narrative stuff, it's an excuse to spend time with the crew, who are extremely fleshed out, very well-written characters. Now, there are a lot of side characters and whatnot throughout the whole thing that are also extremely well-written, but largely it's an excuse to spend time with these people. That's why the most important thing for One Piece to get as an adaptation is actors who can convey that feeling of camaraderie, of I want to spend time with these people regardless of what they're doing. And since the actors are doing such a good job so far, that's what has me really hopeful. Everything else could be even way goofier than it already is, and those actors would already have me feeling hopeful.
1: Yeah. And that also, we've kind of drifted into another thing we didn't talk about. Is the move towards more CGI sets, CGI backgrounds, taking away from the sense of tangibility that you get in live action?
2: I think there's a push pull about that. I, I think there is
1: too. Because, because sometimes I think it really does
2: help. In general, I think yes. I think there's a reason why audiences will still gravitate heavily towards practical effects and puppets and things like that. Even in a modern day, you see people talk about that as a positive for a lot of things. I do think that things like, again, what The Mandalorian is doing, and if you're someone who just watched The Mandalorian and didn't look into the any of the stuff behind it well disney actually basically invented well actually i don't know if they invented it but they basically popularized this brand new technology where the actors are essentially inside a green screen dome that isn't a green screen instead it's almost a photorealistic like just screen around them
1: closer to the holodeck
2: yeah so that the actors can actually feel like they are in the place that they are acting in and if you see background or behind the scenes footage of them doing it, it's fascinating looking it's very cool and i do think just for actors' sanity alone it's a huge step up i think from green screen and i'm glad and ironically
1: that we, we've had it long enough that everyone hates it and has declared it the worst thing ever yeah
2: i don't know man i always go back to uh surya and mckellen breaking down crying shooting the hobbit when he was literally surrounded by green screens and tennis balls and i'm like if he got to instead at least act in this i'm I'm sure there's a difference is my point
1: (laughs) yes well quick diatribe aside real quick the reason everyone loves to bitch about cgi and use it as their go-to criticism is because it's easy and they think it makes them a legit that gives them a legitimate criticism no it doesn't You've pointed out the thing everyone else has noticed and decided it doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, and also, bad CG isn't even, like, a killer. I've seen plenty... Oh, many... there's a difference
1: between good CG and bad CG, and what people try and say is bad CG? No. Yeah. Okay? If you lived through the 90s, you know what bad CG is. Yeah. If it's better than that, it's not that bad. You just want to look like you can actually make a cr- legitimate film criticism.
2: Yeah, exactly. Go back and watch, like... Dungeons and Dragons from two thousand. If, if yeah. CG's better than that, you're 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 fine, okay? there's <laughs> a whole like,
1: one I can go on people's dumb criticism like, oh, this movie's bad like, No. You were old enough to remember bad. This is just okay. There is a difference and we need to remember it.
2: Yeah. So anyway, we've been chatting for a little over an hour, and I'm I'm sure we can keep on going, but I'm not sure what's honestly once that one piece got brought up, my brain started going in a whole other lot of direction. But I know you're not into that, so I don't really want to dig into that at all.
1: <laughs> I think there is at least a buckler to be had as a follow-up to this, discussing what are the properties that kind of work in all the various mediums. Lord of the Rings, the writer over here will be the real test to see how Lord of the Rings works in animation.
2: Yeah, well, I hear you.
1: What about the Ralph Bakshi of it all?
2: Mm-hmm. I'm not
1: getting into that one. I've made enough people mad tonight.
2: Oh, okay. I Well, for the record, I like the Ralph Bakshi movie. But I grew up on
1: it. I do not like it.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know what? Fair. I haven't seen it in probably about 20 years. I probably would dis- have more problems if I watched it now. I'm just going to leave that. Moment. I don't
1: know. What, what did they do to Sam to deserve his treatment? I
2: don't know. I'll tell you one thing, though. Reading, uh, again, I'm about 700 pages in Lord of the Rings, and Sam is great, but... Fucking Sean Astin elevated that character so much. <laughs>
1: also, I want us to go back and talk more about Lord of the Rings. We have gushed about Lord of the Rings so much on this podcast because it really is—it is the game. This is the great closeout. That is the thing that said this will never work
2: outside
1: of this one medium.
2: Well, I'm getting close to—I I think I got about 400 pages left, so I'm—I'm I'm like two-thirds-ish through the book. So you know that might be a decent—we'll dis- see. Anyway, point is, I want to talk about medium utilization I want to explore it a bit with my brother here see what we could kind of pick about it there's no real conclusion here other than it's something I basically never I rarely hear people talk about but I feel like should be a normal part of our lexicon of not just is this movie or show or whatever good but is this in the medium it should be told in is it using the strengths of its medium I feel like that's something that is just needs to be, should be talked about more Personally.
1: Oh, it's an interesting actual criticism of art that we're not doing because we want to go, well, look at that CGI. I can slightly tell that CGI, and therefore it's bad. Versus, you know, this really didn't use the freedom of being a big live-action production to its most grand effect. I think they should have done this.
2: Yeah. Anyway, I think that is a good point for now to put a pin in this. But honestly, and maybe it's because... This is one of those ideas that I kinda of came to somewhat naturally myself, but I'm really fascinated by anyone listening to this, what your thoughts on this are. What are what do you think are strengths of mediums that we talked about, strengths of mediums we didn't talk about, what are examples of pieces that are Good with bad media utilization, or vice versa, or good because of their media utilization. There's a lot of avenues to, I think, look at this from, and I'm very curious what the people have to say about it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to feedback on this one.
2: All right. Well, then, how about we go into our suggestions of the week, where I can actually give a suggestion of the week that I feel like has an interesting mm, facet. I feel it's relevant to this conversation. Yeah, exactly. I went and saw Barbie. Last weekend, or weekend before last, because last weekend I saw Talk to Me, which was a pretty good horror movie, but I want to be on record as saying Barbie fucking is awesome. Now, you don't need me to tell you that. The movie made fuck ton of money, and I'm glad it did, because you know, fuck all of the the worst kind of people online who were about who were getting ready to go woke, go broke for it, and yeah, go woke, go five hundred million dollars international. So fuck them. But
1: <laughs> meanwhile, real quick interjection: studios, the studio that made that is saying they can't afford to pay their writers and actors a living wage.
2: Oh yeah! If we it's didn't, how it, that works? We've made it clear in other recordings, but since it's relevant here, uh, this is a pro-union podcast, and we stand with the Screen Guild of America and the right writer, no, Writers Guild of America. Writers Guild tag State. after. Yeah. It's
1: going on right now, and it's just—it's—it's it's worth talking about today. Movie that made half a billion in its opening weekend has a studio going. Well, we just think it's unfair that these people are asking for more money. Also, Don't they see how strapped for cash we are.
2: And as a side note, I don't know all the details on this, so fact check me if you're listening to this. But to my knowledge, A Twenty Four Studios actually concede or they A24 agreed. A Twenty
1: Four has a has their own agreement because they're not part of the Producers Guild. They did agree. They had their they signed their own contract with the writers, actors, everyone. Yeah, I just want to point out it. that
2: A Twenty Four makes fucking bomb ass movies, and apparently they actually negotiated and came to an agreement with. With sack with the strikers, so just thumbs up to A twenty four.
1: Yeah, A twenty four is good. We're not complaining about A twenty four in this one.
2: Anyway, Barbie though, all that of the stuff aside, Barbie is a great movie. It's also a movie that is way smarter than I think it has. No, no, I don't. I, well, let me rephrase that. It's a movie way smarter than me. I I don't know if it's. I'm smarter. hearing a lot of that. Yeah, and like. So it's a movie with Barbie, Margot Robbie, playing Barbie, Ryan Gosling as Ken, and before above anything else, Ryan Gosling fucking kills it as Ken. He is one of the most hilarious... I am so glad that the Hollywood is more okay with letting Ryan Gosling be funny, because the guy is just really funny. I knew that back from The Nice Guys with him and Russell Crowe. Yeah. But yeah, Barbie is great. It's a really fun time. It is extremely smart to the point where... Here's the thing. Barbie doesn't say anything new. There's like nothing in it that has I haven't seen said somewhere else, but I've never seen all of the things it's saying in one place to the point where I was sitting there trying to keep track of the various things that it was commenting on or, or railing against or or criticizing it. and trying to keep track of it all. was That's what I mean when I say I think that it's smarter than I am and I think it was a very worth your time kind of movie.
1: I'm definitely planning to see it where I'm trying to figure out is can I take my, my my daughter? Desperately wants to see this movie, and I'm trying to figure out like, okay, but are you go? Is this going to entertain you for the like three hour runtime that it is, or are we gonna have to leave halfway through?
2: I think it will probably entertain her. If I have one criticism of the movie, it's that some of the scenes where it could have done with coming down and being more grounded and realistic don't. Like, literally the only parts of the movie I didn't like involved the CEO uh, and the of Mattel and all of his cronies, which I had hoped would basically be, like, real crummy CEO people because they make a distinction between Barbie Land and the real world, and everyone else in the real world acts like real people. But the people who work at Mattel in the movie also act like Barbie Land people, and it creates a I, weird I heard that dissonance. criticism. Yeah, it's literally the only part of the movie I don't like because it doesn't—it doesn't really work for I think what they're trying to do because they got Will Ferrell and they gotta let Will Ferrell be funny and I get that, but
1: he's so much better when he's a dramatic actor.
2: Yeah. Anyway, the movie's a little—it's got quite a bit of adult humor, but I feel like it's the kind. I'm of I'm not humor worried about
1: that. She's not going to get a quarter, uh, even half
2: of it. Then no, I think I think I think she'll be great. I think she'll be Yeah,
1: my only thing is like attention span because she really wants to see it and I really want to see it. It's like, all right, if you think you can uh, sit through
2: this. Yeah, and I think it does use the medium very well from the very specific fact of that tangibility thing we talk about with live action. The idea of making Barbie and Ken feel like real people that are somehow still very obviously Barbie and Ken dolls is an amazing magic trick that I don't really understand how those actors pulled off, but they do.
1: I know the set design is fucking amazing
2: yeah so anyway there's my suggestion
1: alright my suggestion is a show that I just finished watching with my daughter called uh, Craig of the
2: Creek I have heard a lot about Craig of the Creek from oh uh, Craig of the Creek is awesome yeah I don't know much about it I just know that he's he's said it's very good to me
1: I stumbled onto this because she was watching it and then one episode started talking about inner kingdom political wars between the kids Mm. and I'm like hold on I, I gotta watch this, and the next episode I watched a kid built an Ed 209 on a cardboard and went on a rampage. I'm like, oh, this is our new nightly show. We're watching the hell yeah, out of
2: this. I, I think I think Woonvog said that it had obvious DNA of Ed Ed Nettie and Recess, is what he told oh, me. Oh, it's got
1: big Ed Ed Nettie and Recess. It even references that in the show. It's like, you guys remind me of, you know, Ed Ed Nettie. A little bit of Kids next, uh, Codename Kids Next Door. You guys remember that? You're probably too young for that. It was before your time. <laughs>
2: That's
1: great. But anyways, The show is great because it follows this, you know, main character Craig and his friends. They play every day down at this creek. And in that great fashion of shows that we watch, there is a whole kid society in and around this creek.
2: I admit I'm a sucker for, for kid societies. and stuff. That's why I love recess I so much. I know. I love it. It's
1: exactly like that. The kids, they have a trading group. They have over here are the biking kids, and they do their own thing, and it's a whole fleshed-out world, and as the series goes on, we expand, and there's a rival kingdom over on the other side of the creek, and there's eventually a big kingdom-based war between the two of them.
2: I mean, that, that of course, would grab your attention right there. Like, yes, oh, but they build up political, political drama, up. but... <laughs>
1: For kids, I'm in, and it's so inventive and imaginative and fun. They have Halloween episodes that are actually kind of scary. Like, you remember when they used to do that
2: when their shows had, you know, had the Halloween episode that was a little bit creepy? Well, dude, I remember when Cursed Cowley Dog was a thing, so, yeah. I know, but I'm talking like this. they have it uh, It's creative, it's
1: imaginative. It again, it plays in the kid world of imagination, so they get away with, like, okay, did that really legitimately happen? And you're like, of course, it doesn't matter because the kids believed it did. It did. And yeah. honestly, one episode I got to highlight because it left me speechless. It was so fucking good. There is an episode where one of the Car- Craig's friends gets a crush on her friend. Okay. And she feels bad about it because she's like, well, I'm a girl and she's a girl. What if my friends don't like me? What if they think I'm weird? Oh, and they never say it, but it's a whole episode dedicated to this little girl, this this girl, I won't say little girl, because she's not a little girl, she's a girl, kind of going through that process like a kid actually would, mm-hmm. having the conversation with people and going, no, it's okay, that's not unnatural, you shouldn't feel bad about that, and... We accept you the way you are, and then it's just a thing. The rest of the show.
2: Cool. I mean, I. am
1: like, holy shit.
2: I like that. That's becoming more and more normal now. I heard that. Uh, I heard Kipo and the Wonder Beast did that. I remember. Kipo did a lot
1: of it. it was very. but doesn't? They don't even say it. They just. Well, I was going to say. I remember
2: right? that. Um, I am not okay was kind of really great because it didn't ever make a big deal about it as well. So anyway, that's yeah, that's cool.
1: Yeah, I just loved that. It was like, and this is targeted at my daughter's age. You know, my daughter's age. Again, I just love this big thing. And again, it does have big Ed, Ed, and Eddie vibes of it works because kids would believe it works.
2: Well, Ed and Eddie is still probably my favorite kids' cartoon, so that's always a good endorsement for me.
1: And then when they reference, like, you guys remind me of Ed, Ed, and Eddie. I'm like, oh, okay. They, they know exactly what they're doing with this show.
2: Yeah. One
1: complaint I do have is it only has five seasons. The fifth season, they kind of decided to get out of Dodge because this was a Cartoon Network program.
2: Well, five seasons is kind of your golden zone. I mean, Ed and Eddie has well, five seasons, four specials, and a movie.
1: Yeah, well, they had a full five-season run, and they're like, no, we'll take ten, and then just get the fuck out. So the final season feels kind of rushed, mm. but also, unfortunately, the fourth season is the big Kingdom War, and there's no really topping that.
2: Ah, so the, so consider the fifth season more like an epilogue.
1: Yes, it, it very much is... And there's a movie, because I got I love it in the old tradition of when your show ends, you also get a straight-to-TV movie.
2: Yeah, and Eddie got it.
1: <laughs> yep, they're getting one of those. I'm like, oh, this is fun. This was really cool. This felt like a show that I would have loved as a kid, but updated.
2: I might go look that up now, because, I don't know. I mean, I, again, I've been told this before, so I'll probably forget about it again. But I, I do think I would like it from everything i it's, it's
1: really good. Like I said, it's got the whole kids' society, and it doesn't talk down to kids, which is a big thing. It's like, no.
2: I mean, there's, there's a reason I own all of Hey Arnold on DVD.
1: <laughs> it's it's a lot of big Hey Arnold stuff.
2: All right, cool. Well, I think that uh, means it's time to take us into the outro then, my friend.
1: All right, well, thank you for listening. Like, share, subscribe. Do whatever it is the particular site you are listening on demands of you. That includes rating, five stars, five beans, five whatever. I know all the sites have different things, but that's all very important to us, not to you, but please do it.
2: And speaking of all those sites, there's one that you yourself, listener, are currently doing, you sexy person you are, and thank you for doing that. And if there's some other platform that would be easier for you, because you were like, oh, I wish you were here, I had to go over this stupid platform to listen to you guys because I really want to hear you, again, thanks. But tell us what that other platform is, and we're looking to see if it's something that's doable. We haven't had heard anything about that, I think, in a long time, but... So maybe we're on all the places we need to be, but we're always open to new ideas.
1: Well, a lot of them are starting to die off. That R.I.P. Stitcher. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As always, this has been Lord Commander Ory.
2: And his show, brother, Axel Wright.
1: Be sure to tune in next time, and as always, stay honorable.